This show is distributed by SoundCloud. Welcome. Welcome to episode 124 of Texting, hosted this week by Jason Roberts, who's flying solo. In this show, Jason is interviewing award-winning investigative journalist Leslie Kane. She's author of UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record. So, well, Leslie, um, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. We really uh, appreciate you taking the time. Um, And uh, I just finished uh, reading your book, UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record, and I have to say, I'm, I'm extremely impressed. Well, thanks a lot. I'm glad you, you like the book, Jason. Thanks. The website's ufosontherecord.com. My, my interest was first peaked, I don't know, maybe a year ago or something, and I happened to see, um, I think it was a video of Richard Dolan, and I thought he gave a pretty interesting presentation. Um, and we had him on the show, I guess it was last summer, for uh, for an interview, and that was went really well. He had a lot of interesting things to say. Um, but I've, I, I can't, I'm not sure how I found out about your book, or at least your upcoming book at the time. And what really interested, interested me was that you are an investigative reporter. You're not someone who specializes only in, you know, say the study of UFOs. Mm-hmm. So I, I, maybe I'd, it would be interesting to find out first sort of what, what is your background as an investigative journalist? Okay. Um, sure. And, you know, when I started out with this, it was actually in 1999, so it was quite a while ago. And at the time, I, as you said, I was an investigative journalist and I was working at a public radio station in California. And I'd also done a lot of um, freelance writing and publishing of articles on various topics. And a lot of the work I did was on, about Burma, the country of Burma, the struggle for democracy there. And mm-hmm. I'd been over to the country and I'd so I did a lot of reporting on that particular issue. And then when I was for years, and then when I, when I ended up getting this job co-producing and co-hosting a daily investigative news program on KPFA radio in Berkeley, California, um, I was covering a whole range of topics because every day, you know, we had a, a show that covered different topics. It was sort of an in-depth kind of news magazine show. Right. So, um, but you know, my, my, my writing, my, my, um, uh, journalism that I did that involved print journalism was mostly about this issue in Burma, some other things as well. But I never dreamed I would ever get involved with something like UFOs. You know, right. I was, as you said, I was just this, uh, you know, very focused on progressive issues, but not anything to do with this. I was curious about this, and I'd read a little bit about it over the years, and certainly had a, a kind of an interest in it. But it was only when I ended up getting the Cometa report in the mail, which is what I talk about in the, the beginning of my book, um, that's when everything changed for me. Yeah. So why don't you tell us about that? I, I, I think I remember reading in that it was almost like a. You got an advanced copy or a draft copy from a colleague in France, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Can I assume that your listeners know what the report is? No. I, 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 what that is? Okay, I better yeah, explain it. it. Yeah, and let me give you a little background too. Our listeners, we're primarily, you know, a, a tech show. Um, so, our, you know, our, our, our listeners are, are a sharp group, but I don't think they have any particular background in the study of UFOs or Okay, well, or that that's field. good for yeah. me to know. Absolutely, okay. that's good for me to know, yeah. So um, what happened was I had been covering all these topics. As I mentioned, I was 
going into the show every day to do my job, and a colleague in France sent me this advanced copy of this report, which has come to be known as the Cometa Report, which was a French military study on the UFO subject. And um, they had spent this group of French officials, including a number of generals, an admiral and the former head of the space uh, agency, the National Space Agency in France, which is the equivalent of NASA here. I mean, that is the, the level of person we're talking about. They spent three years looking into uh, official cases involving this phenomenon called UFOs, and it was only official cases that were very well documented, cases for which they really could find no other explanation because they had enough data on the case so that people couldn't just rule it out and say, well, it could have been something else. You know, the only cases of interest are ones in which you actually can rule out everything else. Otherwise, you never know. Right. But these were very, very solid, well-documented cases, and they were looking primarily at the sort of defense implications of the, of the phenomenon and the national security aspects and how we might prepare ourselves to better handle it and things like that. But when this arrived on my desk, you know, I was, as a journalist, kind of taken aback by the fact, first of all, that who the authors were. I mean, very, very high. One of them was, I think, a four-star general, you know, right. very high-level group of people. And second of all, I was taken aback by the conclusion that they drew in this report. It was a 90-page study. And they drew the conclusion that they thought the, the most rational explanation, the most valid and most likely explanation for these cases that they studied was what they called the extraterrestrial hypothesis, that they could not, you know, that that was the most likely explanation, that these things were extraterrestrial. And again, we're talking about only a nugget of very, very solid cases. It's that 5% of cases that can't be explained that they were referring to, but as far as I was concerned as a journalist, when a group of generals and an admiral and a, you know, the, the, the equivalent of the head of NASA in another country make a statement like that, I thought it was a big news story. I right. mean, imagine if, if Americans, if four American generals and an American admiral and the head of NASA in America came out and said, hey, we've got all these cases and we think they're extraterrestrial. I mean, that would be a huge story, right? Just a little, just a little FYI for you. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, I mean... I just sort of said, wow, you know, this is really a big story, and it's fascinating. And I read the report, and the cases were fascinating, and they did analysis as to what they thought the implications might be for society. And, you know, I thought, like, oh, my God, look at the level of people that are saying this. So I decided that I was going to look into it some more and hopefully write a story about this particular report that I just received. Now, the advanced copy thing was that um, it was a French study, of course, and Lawrence Rockefeller had actually funded a group called the Fund for UFO Research in America. Right. To have the thing professionally translated, and this was, and then it was going to be released here to the press. But I was given a copy that was months and months. They were going to release it, I think, in the spring or something. And I was given the copy, you know, maybe six months before it was going to be made public here. But I, I did get this English translation, so it was an advanced copy, and and uh, I was just given the opportunity to be the journalist to write about it, to break the story, basically, and I. I thought that was great. So I started to do a lot more research into the topic, and I wrote a story um, in a nutshell is what happened. And in May, uh, you know, about six months later, I published a very long piece in the Boston Globe about this report and related issues to it. And that's sort of what got me started, basically. I mean, this was, and the, the, the reason I was able to do it in the Boston Globe was that the editor in this section, which was this Sunday kind of news analysis section, was I had already published three or four or five stories with her before. She was had a lot of respect for my work, 
and was still extremely hesitant to publish anything on UFOs. <laughs> yeah, I'll but, bet. I'll, yeah. you know, the fact that I had a track record there, it means the only way I was able, able to get that story published, I was really shocked at how turned off the media was, the people that I approached, and other editors I approached as well who had published my work very happily in the past. But when, as soon as the word UFO was entered into the topic, it was like, forget it. You know, they wouldn't even look at what you had. Right. So right. Um, this editor was in the, things have changed now, but then it was really, really difficult. And this editor in the New York, and because I had this relationship with this very fine editor at the Boston Globe, she was willing to, to, to go along with this. And that's how it all happened. And I, since that happened, I had been completely focused. I mean, you say I'm a, Broad, yes, I have a broad, broad background in journalism, and that's always been my approach to the subject, but I've been pretty much primarily focused on this one topic since that article came out in the Boston Globe. I've done a few other things, but not much else. Right. Well, I, you know, two questions I have about that. I mean, how scared were you about uh, your, you know, hurting your own credibility by writing this story? I mean, did, did, did it cover... You know, after you write it, wrote it, were you ever thinking, you know what, maybe this, maybe I just shouldn't do this? Cause Absolutely. I could have a, yeah. I mean, Jason, I was terrified. I mean, I was so nervous about it. And when I think back on it now, it seems kind of ridiculous because, for a lot of reasons. But, yes, it's a very good question because I was working at this radio station at the time with very progressive, you know, forward-thinking people who I had very good relationships with. I didn't even tell them that sure. I was looking into this subject matter. I mean, I was very very nervous about the whole ridicule thing. So what I did was I waited until the story actually came out because then I felt, well, now I have something. It's a major newspaper. I have something right. to show for it. But I was, I, even though I was very, very nervous about it, um, and I'm glad you asked that question because uh, much more before, I mean, once the article came out, it kind of changed it for me. But I felt like I was really risking my career in doing this. I really did. Right. And, um, you know, nowadays it seems like, well, you know, it's, it's just, not a big deal anymore to write a story about UFOs. It's much, I think a lot has changed and we can talk about that as a separate point. But yeah. for me personally, I was really anxious about it. Yes. Well, then, I, I mean, you know, I, I would say I have a lot of respect for that because I think most people, even if they're generally intellectually honest, they're willing to ask the hard questions, even if they're not going to like the answers, would probably still fail to really follow through on something like this. So I, 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 that's, that's impressive. And, uh, and the, the second thing I want to ask you about it is, what you just brought up is you said things have changed that, you know, in the last 10 years or so that, pe that the medias or the publishers or editors are a little more open to publishing stories on the UFO phenomenon? Yeah, I mean, I really do think so. I think the climate, I mean, there's still a major problem of ridicule in the culture at large. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It's a huge, it's a huge problem, especially among the political establishment. I mean, because I've been working within that universe, and I can tell you they are so nervous about any association with this topic. But I do think that the media has grown. I mean, since the time that I started, I think there's a lot more coverage. I think there's interest. I mean, whenever there's a sighting of someplace, you know, the local media almost always reports it. Um, I think that right. they're, they take it a little more seriously. I mean, they often are somewhat tongue-in-cheek about it still, but I just think that, you know, it's more part of the sort of the, the media dialogue now, and um, there's less ridicule than there was. I mean, I don't know if you would agree if you're somebody who's been interested in this for a while, but when I think back the way in, about the way it was when I started, there's just so much more coverage now. I just think, um, and I think it's more serious. I, I just been my observation. You know, it's still nearly not what we need. 
still there's still problems, and it's much too superficial. There aren't many journalists that really jump into this and really dig, you know, and do in-depth investigations, which is what we need, you know, somebody from the Washington Post or something to do, somebody who has a lot more access than I have as a freelance writer, you know. But um, that hasn't happened. But I still think that things have improved a great deal, and I don't think that somebody starting, a journalist today is necessarily going to feel as nervous about writing a story about something like this than, than I did then. Well, uh, how was your... Better. Well, how, how, what was the um, reception like for um, your book? I mean, I, I saw you had a, uh, a short, um, I guess, appearance on the Colbert Report, um, mm-hmm. and I and I think I got I can't remember. I thought I saw uh, that you got that you got some opportunities on uh, maybe some morning shows. I mean, what was the general reception? Yeah, uh, the reception was really fabulous. I mean, I was just and the Colbert Report, of course, was the highlight for me, and it was you know it was a full interview with him. Right. Uh, six or you know maybe six minutes, whatever, however long his oh. interviews are that he does every night. And um, I also was on Fox TV maybe three or four times, and MSNBC, and you know Michio Kaku went on M- MSNBC, the physicist who yep, you know, I, your listeners are familiar with. Oh, yeah. He went on just to talk about my book. I mean, I was totally blown away. I mean, there was the, re- the response. There was a tremendous amount of enthusiasm in the press about this book, and I think it was just because it's. You know, the kind of material that it's offering is not something that they're used to being able to get their hands on. And it has such a solid, serious quality to it. But lots of radio stuff, lots of television, and, you know, just a, a, intense interest by the media. I was very, very excited and pleased about that. Yeah, so ultimately you're rewarded for, uh, I guess, uh, being brave and just doing it. <laughs> and doing I mean, it, it was a know. culmination of 10 years of work, you know, that went into right. that book. Really, it really was. I mean, I, I took me many, many years to cultivate the relationships with the people who contributed to the book. And, you know, your listeners need to know that only half the book was actually written by me. Half the, half the, the other half of the book was written by 13 amazing high-level officials from different countries, including five generals. So I have these contributions from people. So you get to read in their own words, you know, their, about their investigations into this and about their experiences in dealing with the phenomenon directly. And that sort of gives it a very special power because you're not just hearing me telling you what they say. You're hearing it directly from them. Yeah, it fact, took me a long time to, get the, to win the trust of, the, you know, to develop the trust and respect of people like that that would allow them to, be, to feel comfortable coming forward in a book like this. That's part of what, what I mean when I say it, you know, it took many, many years to get to the point to be able to do this. Well, you know what's I, th- I think what's really interesting about it is that the way you approach it, you you I mean you approach it as an investigative reporter, and a, a lot of times books on UFOs um, they seem to they might talk about some interesting evidence, but then they go off on all the speculation, and then you, that's right when you're just like, oh, give me a break, you know? They're like, oh, and the spiritual awakening and all these kinds of things, and you're just like, well, now you're just speculating, and then as soon as you start speculating, you start getting away from what we actually know. And that's what's really important is what do we know? What are the facts and what are the evidence? And it seems like you made a really big effort not to speculate, <laughs> just to talk about, just present the evidence as, um, as you found it. Absolutely. I mean, that was absolutely my goal. And I, I think um, that's also what does set this book apart because you're right. You know, most UFO books, it's all mixed up. I mean, there's some really great facts, but then they they throw in the rest of the stuff, and the reader can't sort out what's real and what isn't. Right. I mean, like you say, and 
Absolutely. I mean, I, I am a journalist. I'm not a ufologist. I'm not a believer. I'm not a, a disbeliever. I actually studied the data, but, you know, brought forward the best information that we have, um, screened out very carefully anything that was not really, really solid. And I mean, I took, there was so much other information, but I took only the absolute best, you know, most, most well-documented and solid stuff. Didn't make any claims about what, what these things are because we do not know that yet. So I think right. that's another important point. I mean, the, the, the contributors to my book, many of whom are high-level government officials and military people, you know, also all agree. We all agree. We, don't, we have not definitively proved yet what UFOs are. And I think one of the other problems with so many UFO books is that people deci have decided that these are extraterrestrial spacecraft. It's sort of a built-in assumption that people have. But actually... Right. We, our scientists have not shown that yet. We don't know that. And so I took the sort of what I call the agnostic position in the book. And I think that also helps give it a lot of credibility because uh, the book is making the point we don't know what they are. There's a, there's a lot of very good data here to show that there is a phenomenon here. There is something here. And here's how we know that. And here are the people that also know that and the people that have had direct experience dealing with it from around the world and then it gets to the point of what are we going to do about this? And we're making the, the you know, we're, we're making the request that not only the U.S. government take it more seriously, but also that the scientific community get involved and decide to figure it out. And then right. we will know what they are. Right. You know, you know that's, the, that's the thesis of the book, basically. Yeah. And uh, it, uh, it's, yeah, I think you make a, you make a great case. I kind of almost viewed it like a, um, like a court case, right? Like what evidence would you bring to in front of a jury? Because you, you wouldn't want to bring anything that would be questionable that the, the other side could attack and dismiss. And it seems like you did a really good job of sifting through the weak, you know, the weaker you. or the, or the, you know, the, the things that would be, could be brought into question. So, you know, I, so I think what it might be what fun to do now is have you talk through um, a few of the um, major cases. I mean, there were three that I am, I don't know. I mean, they're all interesting, but I, I picked out three, I guess, sort of at random. Okay, well, let's hear which ones. Yeah, I'd love to know which ones you, you found interesting. Well, um, I thought the feet, what's referred to as the Phoenix Lights, interesting, uh, fascinating. I, I first saw it in, um, I think it was the, I know what I saw, the, um, the documentary right. made by Jamie Foxx, which I think mm -hmm. you collaborated on to some degree, right? I did assist him. Yeah, I, I was pr a producer on the I Know What I Saw, and I, I helped him produce certain parts of that. Yeah, okay. I did, and I was actually in it briefly, but it's, it's his film, no doubt about that. Right, yeah, so I, I remember seeing you in that, and I, I think I was like, oh, I, that's Leslie Kane. You know? um, yeah, actually, my, my biggest role in that was helping to arrange the press conference, you know, in November 2007, yeah. where, in which that movie was sort of spun off of that press conference. So I was very much an organizer for that event and very involved with that event. Right. That, that's, that's pretty much what I figured when I saw, when I saw the press conference, because I had, I had already, um, I, I think even before I saw the show, I think it was on, on, I think it debuted on the history channel. That's correct. And I think you I, did, yeah. yeah. And I think I, I either had, uh, already read about your book or I, I, or the, seen the table of contents. So when I saw the people who were in the show, I was like, okay, wait a minute, this very, parallels very closely. Exactly, so, because some of the people in the, in the film are, are, have written for my book, that's right. Right, yeah. so the, a couple that were just, the, the Phoenix Lights are, are fascinating, um, or that, that whole thing, because it's not like one person just saw a light for a few seconds up in the sky, and like, I don't know, man, it looked kind of crazy, and that was the sighting, right? 
Exactly. I mean, this is truly unbelievable because it was so close up and it was seen by so many people at the same time for a, a long period of time. So if you could, please uh, yeah, maybe tell the story of the Phoenix Lights. That would be Sure. Really cool. And of course, the Belgian wave is very similar to that. That's too. my other one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they both fit that bill that you just described of, of lengthy sightings seen by many people, you know, over a long period of time that are absolutely irrefutable. But the Phoenix one was in uh, 1997, and um, it was, you know, these sort of delta-shaped very large. I mean, some people describe them as massive, you know, a mile long, you know, those kinds of descriptions. Uh, a, ser- a number of them, two or three of them that kind of drifted over the state of Arizona for a period of about an hour to an hour and a half. And it was not that late. It was like between 8 and 9.30 p.m. on March 13th. People were outdoors because the Hale-Bopp Comet was coming by that night, which is just such an amazing kind of coincidence or I don't know what. So they were outdoors kind of looking around at the sky, which is so, and, you know, not everybody was, but it just so happened it was the same night. And, um, you know, phones started ringing and lots of people were calling in these sightings. And um, they were eventually, you know, able to map them. And and as you, thousands of people, I mean, most likely saw it. And my relationship to this case has been primarily through Governor Fife Symington, who has a really interesting story. In fact, I was just in Phoenix two weeks ago interviewing him for a, a film that, that I'm involved with, a documentary It's going to be on History Channel, but I don't know how much you want me to tell the story. The actual sighting, though, is, again, one of these phenomenal events in which lots of people see the same thing over a long period of time. And people think that UFO sightings are just, oh, a light in the sky that some guy drinking some beer sees at 3 in the morning. But that right. is, just is not the case. There are numerous events that are witnessed by many, many, many people. And the, the Belgian wave was a similar event to the Phoenix case, but really even a stronger case. And this happened in 8990 in in the country of Belgium and stronger because it had an extraordinary photograph. A photograph was taken because these objects kept coming back. And so you have lots of repeated sightings and you're bound to get a picture. It's very hard for people to understand why we don't have more pictures. If there were thousands of people out in Arizona that night, we literally don't have one photograph of that event. And right. people wonder about that. And to me, it's very understandable. I've talked to many of the witnesses to that event. And they describe what it was like witnessing this thing. You're, you're standing there completely awestruck. You cannot take your eyes off of it. You see it drifting over you. And you know you might have another 20 seconds before it's going to disappear. And you're right. just standing there. And you, you cannot believe what you're seeing. And the last thing you want to do is go somewhere into a house or you know, go somewhere else to get a camera. And nowadays, of course, people have a lot more cell phones and, and you're going to get more pictures. But even in 97, people just didn't have cameras the way they do now. So when you talk to the witnesses, you really get an idea as to why they don't run off and get a camera. Because the, the, the flyovers, although lots of people saw them in Arizona, they don't last that long. You know, they, right. the thing is massive. It's moving very slowly, not making a sound. But you see it come and you see it heading off and you know you're not going to have that much that long to look at it. But in Belgium, the thing kept coming back and there was a photograph that was taken. It's in my book. It's a really, really spectacular photograph that was turned into the Air Force, analyzed by zillions of labs. You know, the, the chain of custody has been documented. We absolutely know that this is an authentic photograph of a UFO. And that gives it a tremendous power. And we also have 
really more data in Belgium than we do in Phoenix because the objects kept coming back. We have all kinds of police officers and, and army people that saw it too. So right. both of those cases are just absolutely irrefutable that they occurred. One of them involves a governor who talks about the case. The other one involves a general, General de Brouwer. And both of these individuals wrote their own pieces in my book about these events. So, you know, what do you, you just can't argue with it. Right. Well, you know, it's really, there was actually some part that it made me laugh almost in the, in the, in the Phoenix case, um, you described this, you know, uh, UFO kind of low, it seemed like in dark and it was like, you know, like a mile in length or multiple football fields in length at least. And it went right over a peewee baseball game right, <laughs> and I covered mean, up the entire sky and the whole yeah. game stops and all the parents and kids looking up and they're like, uh... <laughs> I know, isn't that a great little detail? I mean, uh, yeah. you know, that's what that was told to me by somebody who investigated the case, that that happened. Yeah, and it's just an amazing detail. You can imagine just sitting there in the stands watching your kids and everyone just kind of stops. And then after and I don't know moment, what they did after the thing went on, went on its way. I mean, I'd love to know. Those are the kinds of things you'd like to know more about. But it, it, it was, I mean, people doing all kinds of things that night. A lot of people were in their cars and they stopped and got out. The thing was like right over their cars, you know, it's. It's fascinating. Another guy, I just met some witnesses actually a couple of weeks ago when I was in Phoenix for the first time. And one of them was outdoors working on a truck. He was like a, you know, working on this equipment outside the company that he worked for. And he just looked up and there it was. Right. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it's it like, is, uh, yeah. it's really fascinating. I mean, you know, unfortunately the Phoenix case is not as well documented as the Belgian case is. I mean, we, you know, they're, but we have what we have in that case are lots of witnesses. Um, you know, there are other cases that I've brought out in this book which involve militaries and officials and things like that. We don't have that in Belgium. We have the massive amounts of people who saw it, and also a governor who I well, doubt and, is going to make up a story about something that's taboo like that. Right. Yeah. Right. Because he and he writes that whole part about how he initially kind of played it off as a joke at a press conference, but then eventually came out later and says, "All right, you know, I went back and actually saw it myself." Exactly. I think it's a really interesting story. I mean, the transformation that he went through around this whole thing and, and the fact that he wouldn't talk about it at the time and actually ridiculed it in a press conference shows the power that this ridicule has on people, especially people in, in politics. You know, right. He actually saw it himself but didn't dare say anything. Right. So, you know, it's, it's a fascinating uh, kind of uh, metaphor for the whole problem. And then he changed his mind 10 years later and since he was out of office, and was very impressed by James Fox's film, actually, and just decided, you know what, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about this. I'm not going to hide this anymore. And he's been a great supporter ever since he did that. That was in um, 2008, I think, that he heard. 2007, it was around the, the 10th anniversary of the Phoenix Lights. That's when he came forward. Right. And in the Belgium case, I, I made a couple notes that there were like 143 sightings on November 29, 1989, when it occurred. And um, I think it said there were 300 cases involved witnesses seeing a craft at less than 300 meters. And 200 cases lasted longer than five minutes. Um, and that one of the objects was observed by 13 policemen in eight different locations. And they just kind of watched it and watched it and right. watched it. And that was the first back night, and forth. Yeah. yeah, I um, mean, that's pretty extraordinary. And, the, and that data that you just read is being reported by a major general. You know, this right. is not just some civilian research group. I mean, there were there were scientists who assisted in the research. There was a scientific group in Belgium because the the Air Force couldn't handle it all. I mean, they were right. too busy. But 
this is a major general that's telling us this information. This is not just, you know, this is definitely accurate. He's a meticulous, very conservative, meticulous man who I know very well. And he has been extremely careful in what he's presented here. And it's, it's absolutely accurate. So, uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, and he what was also a big sh- yeah, exactly. He was a big shot in NATO as right as well, right? Um, like he wasn't just uh, get some kind of uh, role in in, in NATO well, forces in addition. You may be thinking of the guy from France, ECR. Okay, who was a okay. NATO. He was assistant, uh, I think, assistant um, deputy general for science or something like that. I mean, um, you know what? Okay. I'm not exactly sure. I'd have to look at. Um, General de Brouwer's bio, which I can do while we, we continue to talk. But he's, you know, he's a, a major general and was um, chief of the air staff for the Belgian Air Force. I mean, he's a very high-level guy. At the time this happened, he was a colonel. He right. was eventually okay. promoted to these other positions, um, you know, because he remained in the military afterwards. Um, he, he was, yeah, became wing commander of the Belgian Air Force Transport Wing, and then he became chief of the operations division in the air staff, and then he was promoted to a major general and served as Deputy Chief of Staff of the Belgian Air Force. That's, okay. That was okay. his trajectory, yeah. yeah. One thing I found is interesting is that, um, you know, there are, of course, numerous cases of, uh, of these things being tracked by military aircraft, spotted by multiple airplanes or multiple fighter jets, um, and also being tracked on their radar as well as radar on the ground. And I think one of the, one of the, really good cases is the one that occurred in Iran, right? Which is, um, and, 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 uh, the actual pilot himself went on to become like a colonel or general himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He became a general actually. And he was a pilot at the time. He had an air force pilot. His name is Parvis Jafari. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he, um, he was involved. It is one of the more extraordinary events and it's extremely well documented that it took place in 1976 over Tehran and Iran. And I mean, I can, and you would, I can summarize the story for you. Sure, lots, sure, of, yeah. lots of detail, and I encourage people to read actual his account of it. It's so fascinating because he was the one involved. But there were, you know, this brilliant object was seen over Tehran, and he was, there were four pilots that were sent up there in two different, two aircraft with two people each in them. And um, Parvis Jafari was the pilot in one of them. Uh, initially, and they were chasing it. And they really just went up. They were ordered by a general to go up to see what this thing was, just try to get a better look at it. Right. And the first plane returned, and, and, and every time, the interesting thing about this is that every time he got within a certain distance of this object, he would lose all his equipment. It would just go out. His radio would be garbled, and he, had, he couldn't, um, you, you know, it was as if, I think it was 25 miles. If he got too close, there was something that was impacting his aircraft that wouldn't allow his equipment to work. And the right. even more interesting point is that after some period of time, there were actually some smaller, what he called projectiles, objects that were sent, seemed to have been sent from this larger, brilliant, lit up kind of strobe light kind of a thing that was just sitting there. He, he said it was so bright, you couldn't see any structure behind the lights. And right. they would be flashing in all these different colors. And these smaller projectiles kind of were, were coming out of that and heading right for his aircraft. And he thought, what am I going to do? So he, he got his missiles ready because in self-defense, he felt he had to shoot these things down or they were going to have a collision. And it happened three different times. He was just about to press the button to fire the missile, the heat-seeking missile, when he would lose control of his, of his missile. I don't know what the technical name is, but the equipment that allowed him to fire, he completely lost control of it. And it was right. very eerie for him because it was as if somehow... It wasn't about getting too close to it. It was just somehow something, somehow the phenomenon knew that he was just about to fire. 
because at each moment that he was about to fire, he'd lose the capacity to do it. <laughs> and the objects, of course, never hit him, but they, they came close enough to really frighten him. And eventually he went back down, and something appeared to have landed as well on the ground when he was going down, and they went and there were strange sounds coming from the, you know, the emergency squash, I think they call it. Uh-huh. Anyway, lots of really bizarre things going on. And, and what's interesting, too, about this case is that there was a briefing afterwards, and there was an, a, a high-level American official there who attended the official briefing about the subject, about the whole event, and filed a three-page detailed document with the Defense Intelligence Agency about it, and also assessed the case that, you know, as being a very, very valuable case and totally well-documented and useful for intelligence information and made all these notes that were very positive about this important case. And this was a secret document and this was filed after the time when the United States had told the public that it was no longer interested or, or investigating the, the UFO phenomenon. So right. it's very interesting in that, you know, that it's so well documented, actually by our own government, even though it took place in Iran. And lots right. of people and, have talked about it in Iran, too. So. Right. And um, I, I, I'm trying to make sure I, I'm not confusing this with another case, but was it that the... Um, I think that the pilot, he told this uh, American official that he tried to fire, but he couldn't. And the, and the guy responded, like, yeah, that's probably a good thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, you really re- yeah, you're amazing with the details here. I, thought that, I mean, I thought that was so interesting, too. The American said, it's probably a good thing that you weren't able to fire. Yeah. I mean, it's like shooting a, it's like shooting a bow and arrow at a, like an aircraft carrier. It's like, you know, I know, just- and I, I think the implication of that probably is, you know, you could have been taking a big risk, buddy. Yeah, you know these things. You get in, and, and um, but you know it's interesting that there are other cases of, and there's another case in the book about a, a pilot who fired and actually hit the thing and didn't have an effect on it. But no matter what we, you know, there's no cases of a of a UFO actually acting aggressively in response to any action that we might that that, that we, you know, the pilots might perform, even if they're aggressive towards the UFO. We don't have any cases of the UFO behaving in any kind of aggressive or damaging way towards our aircraft, which is, I think, interesting. Um, So I think there's sort of a general feeling among the high-level people that deal with this that these, whatever they are, they're not hostile. And that that might also give uh, the military reason to just say, look, we're just not going to deal with it um, because uh, whatever it is, we can't control it and it doesn't seem to be uh, up to anything nefarious. I mean, at least it's not hostile. It's not, so, a, it's not really a threat, so we got other things to focus on, and we can't figure <laughs> it out anyway. I mean, I'm sh- I, I agree with you that that's most likely their position. I mean, we, there's always the question of what do they know that, we, that they're not giving us, you know, what information do they have that's being kept classified? We don't know right. the answer to that, but I think it's very likely that they, know, they don't know a whole lot more than the rest of us. And they certainly, yeah, they're not a threat, so that's not what they're going to focus on. Can't right. control then, them anyway, as you said. So, and, and all um, it's going to do is is freak people out and make people aware that you can't control your own airspace. Like, yeah, exactly. And so that that's a very good reason to try to not talk about it. Nonetheless, I don't agree that 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 they should be not. I think they should talk about it for lots of reasons. But I can really understand their reasons for choosing not to, which are basically what you just stated, as far as I'm concerned. So I, I respect their position on that. But uh, as a a member of the, you know, the population here, I don't, 
I still want to fight against the secrecy, and I think that people have a right to know what's going on, and that right. the government should be more involved, as as governments are in other countries. And, you know, it's interesting, I mean, Jason, even I mean, countries like Belgium and the UK and France and other countries in South America, the government has acknowledged very specific cases publicly that they could not explain. They've told the people about it. And there hasn't been any kind of mass panic or fear or disruption to society as a result. So right. I think it's possible that our officials are underestimating uh, the population's capability of dealing with something like this, even if we don't know what they are and can't explain them, and even if we can't control them. A lot of people accept it already anyway. Yeah, and it, it seems to me almost like it's a rationalization for them not to talk about it. It's like there are other reasons that they might have, but they'll use that as a rational. It's like, well, everybody's going to freak out, so you know, or they might. So we'll just use that as a reason not to, I mean, well, another case that I thought was is, is fascinating that I, I had not heard of until fairly recently was the Rendlesham Forest case. I, I wonder if you could uh, give us a quick uh, summary of that. Yeah. And again, that's probably one of the more complicated cases. I, it's right. very complicated. It took place over days and it's, it's going to be a harder one to, to explain, okay. but no, but it's, it's really, really important. 1980, at a um, at the um, it was an airbase in the UK, but it was an American airbase. And basically, you know, on the, there were a series of events that happened over two, three or four days. Uh, the first night, something actually landed, and was witnessed by three people very close up. One of them even touched it, and drew all these pictures of it, and uh, made notes of it in his notebook. Took pictures. The pictures didn't come out when they were taken to the lab. There's a lot of a lot of details involved with this case. But there was a lot of physical evidence that the thing had landed because it left marks in the ground. Trees were, were branches were broken off the trees. There was radiation levels that were taken. I mean, there was, it was well documented that the thing landed there. And um, these people saw it and other people saw it take off. And then another night, uh, a colonel was involved. He was the deputy base commander witnessing all kinds of extraordinary craft sending pencil beams of light down to his feet. He was out in the woods with a, a group of people. I mean, it sounds really like science fiction when you just hear me talk about it. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, it sounds, it, like an X, really, yeah, it does, sounds like an X-Files episode or something. It does. I mean, it's really one of the most bizarre cases, but it, it's also extremely well documented. I mean, these people all filed reports. There was all kinds of physical evidence. It was, you know, they were debriefed. They were interviewed by officials and the colonel who was a deputy base commander you know, was required to write a report. He actually tried to prevent it from being released a few years later through the Freedom of Information Act. I mean, these people do not, they have nothing to gain from this stuff being made public. And so, you know, you can't, the argument that, oh, it's being hoaxed or made up, it just absolutely makes no sense. I mean, he tried to prevent this document from coming out because he knew his life would never be the same afterwards, and it, it hasn't been. So he actually wrote a chapter in the book, Colonel Charles Holt, describing his own direct with this, as did James Peniston, who was the gentleman who saw it on the ground and actually touched it. And there were also hieroglyphic, what he called hieroglyphics on it, symbols that he copied down in his notebook. And I, in the book, I've actually got the uh, copy of the actual drawing that he made in his notebook of it. So, I mean, it, it's just absolutely mind-blowing, mind-boggling case. Yeah, you know, the when documentation you look is so strong, you just can't really, the documentation, you just are kind of left stuck with it. Like, what can you do with this? You know, it's, it's documented. It happened. Yeah, you can't pretend it didn't happen. I mean, the, it's, it's irrational to discount um, evidence like that. 
and pretend it didn't, it doesn't exist. I mean, which seems to be what happens with a lot of people is, you know, the assumption is to take this stuff seriously would be somehow irrational. But if you're dismissing evidence or unwilling to look at documented evidence with radar returns, multiple high credible witnesses, things like that, it just seems like it's, you have to, it's the other way around, actually. I would agree with you. That's yeah, irrational to deny evidence. And I think with a case like this, they don't so much deny that it happened as they, they try to find some other explanation for it. And they're absolutely, you know, the leading one with the debunking community has been that this was a lighthouse. Right. These, you know, these, <laughs> these high-level military people wouldn't know how to recognize the beam that they see every night coming from the lighthouse. I mean, six, is, was it like six miles away or something like that? Yeah, too? and it, you know, it's a regular pulsing beam. They're totally familiar with it. They're not going to be talking about you know, unidentified flying objects if it was a lighthouse. There's not going to be physical evidence on the ground you know, with holes in the ground and radiation and trees that have been burnt. and you know, I mean, all the, all the stuff that we have, you know, the, 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 they tend to come up with these irrational alternative explanations to just find something to make it go away um, because they know they can't say it didn't happen when there's this much documentation. So, right. Um, and, but you know, it's laughable a lot of the time what, what people will say, because you're right. There's an irrational fear or denial or going on among certain people that they just, this cannot happen. Therefore it didn't happen. You know, that's their, that's their assumption. You know, I'd like to actually quote something out of your book, which I think um, really uh, summarizes this very well, is what, uh, uh, I guess, Dr. J. Allen, J. Allen Hynek, is that right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. He yeah. says, uh, you write, Hynek postulated that in its, in its inability to accept something as revolutionary as the existence of these inconceivable crafts, our psyche simply shuts the whole thing out. The impossible reality overheats the human mental circuits and blows the fuses, fuses in a protective mechanism for the mind. When a collective breaking point is reached, the mind must openly disregard the patent evidence of the senses. It can no longer encompass such evidence within its normal borders. And J. Allen Hynek was the chief debunker for Project Blue Book for a number of years, right? I mean, he went around um, taking pleasure in debunking sightings. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, I'm really glad you read that. Isn't that a beautifully written bit? Yes, I mean, he's is. the one that wrote it. I might have paraphrased right. it, but I, I don't know if that was a quote or if it was a paraphrase. But, yeah, I mean, he was hired by the U.S. Air Force in the early 50s when they set up Project Blue Book, which was their investigative unit to try to figure out the UFO phenomenon. It was also a place where the public could call in to report sightings. I mean, a long story involved with Project Blue Book, but we'll focus on Hynek. That he was, when he started, he was an astronomer from Northwest University. When he's hired, he was absolutely convinced that this was total nonsense. Right. And all his cronies would laugh about it, and he was going to go on the, go and join the Air Force to, uh, you know, prove it. And, you know, he's going to help straighten people out that this is all ridiculous. And he spent, um, and the, the project was shut down in 70, so he was there for about 20 years. And by the time the project was over, he was absolutely transformed. He knew for sure that there was a real phenomenon here. Uh, he had, you know, he had studied case after case after case. And he wrote his own book in the early 70s, a few years later, an absolutely classic. You know, if anybody's going to read five books on UFOs, that's one of them. Um, describing this transformation that he went through and, and making the point that these things actually do exist. They are real. And here were, the, here were the problems with Project Blue Book. And look at the way we, you know, they ridiculed it when they shouldn't have. And he just, he laid it all on the line. And he was a, a man who was completely transformed, all it took was for him to study the evidence. 
right. you know, to be directly involved. And I'm telling you, anybody who does that is going to become convinced because it's not the opposite way around. It's not like, oh, if I really study this, I'll figure out that it's not, that it's something else. It just doesn't happen that way. I know so many people Dick Richard Haynes is another one who, who wrote a chapter in my book who's an expert on aviation safety cases. They start out these people, you know, and they're trained people thinking this is absolute bunk. And it's only after they spend a long time looking into it that they are completely, they, they completely are, are reverse their positions because they really have no choice. Anybody that studies it is going to come to that conclusion. Most people just don't take the time or they don't have the interest to do that. So well, Heineck is a beautiful example of that, of that whole process. Yeah, it, it, yeah, absolutely. And um, he, he actually, it, 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 that whole passage got me thinking a little bit of a of an article that I had read um, not too long ago, and I forwarded you a, a link to it. So I don't, I don't know if you had a chance to take a look at it, but it was entitled "How Facts Backfire," um, and it's basically about how facts don't necessarily change people's minds when it is when it comes in conflict with their uh, established worldview. Um, the examples in the, uh, I guess, in the studies that were done, this was uh, some research that was done at the University of Michigan back in 2005, 2006, was based primarily on po- um, political beliefs and that, you know, you could, um, you could have a, an absolute uh, credible, um, like this is an indisputable fact that would be complete a conflict with what their beliefs were, but it, it wouldn't have any effect. Mm, yeah, that's and, so interesting. Very interesting. I think yeah, that applies here beautifully. And it says, in in one part it says, in a series of studies in 2006, researchers at the University of Michigan found that when misinformed people, particularly political partisans, were exposed to corrected facts in news stories, they rarely changed their minds. In fact, they often became even more strongly set in their beliefs. Facts they found were not curing information like an underpowered antibiotic. Facts could only make misinformation even stronger. Um, And what was even... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and, and and what was even what was kind of interesting about it is there's two things things that really apply I think to the, the UFO phenomenon as much as it does to politics. Um, as for instance, is um, it says that the effect is only heightened by the information glut when endless rumors, misinformation, and questionable variations on the truth. It's never been easier for people to be wrong and at the same time feel more certain that they're right. Right, and that's exactly the, the situation here. And we were talking in the beginning about all the misinformation that's sort of mixed up with occasional facts that are thrown together in this huge pot of total right. chaos. And you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, that, that's, I'm gonna I'm gonna actually put that article up on my. I didn't have a chance to look at it yet, but it sounds fascinating. I'm gonna put it up on my yeah. Facebook page. So yeah, yeah, really, yeah, really, I mean, it really was a, a fitting. And, and and the last part about that was really interesting. It said that um, the last thing I'll quote about is it. A 2006 study by Charles Tabor and Milton Lodge at Stony Brook University showed that politically sophisticated thinkers were even less open to new information than less sophisticated types. Um, These people may be factually right about 90% of things, but their confidence makes it nearly impossible to correct the 10% on which they're totally wrong. Um, Interesting. Really interesting. yeah, which which then goes. Uh, one thing you mentioned is that okay, so if you go to the population at large and you take a poll, like, do you think their UFOs are, you know, are real, right, or they're not mm-hmm. hoaxes mm-hmm. and misidentifications, and or, or even as far as say, they, do you think they're likely extraterrestrial, you know, craft or something? Most people say yeah, probably, <laughs> but if you go to the you know scientists, media, politicians, they're going to say absolutely not, and no serious person would ever consider that. And in fact, I'm embarrassed that you even asked me that question. Probably <laughs> right, right? right. right um, yeah. 
and it kind of falls in line with that. Because um, they're, they're, the, cause they're the more sophisticated thinkers that you're talking that's right. about. Yeah, that's I mean, right. it's, it's very interesting. They also have, I guess, more at risk if they're, you know, if they're sort of in the public eye and they're sophisticated for that reason. I mean, they're going to they're gonna be less likely to take a chance on something that's really threatening to their worldviews. Maybe, right. but a lot of it is about what the culture thinks of it and just the fact that this subject is so taboo. So that's, it's a really, really interesting, and, and, you know, Heineck, when you read that quote from Heineck, I mean, that was his attempt to kind of try to figure out how this could possibly be the case, that right. people could be in such denial um, when he was, you know, after the Hudson Valley wave occurred, which was very similar to what we to the Phoenix Lights and to the Belgian case that happened right here in New York State, where, where I live in New York City. So... Yeah, it's like how do you comprehend the incredible denial and and um, yeah, I guess denial is the main word and just that people have when they're when there is so much information to the contrary, right? And, and, and yeah, and, and and that whole that whole topic of the UFO taboo, um, I I actually never heard that phrase, um, and hmm. I think it makes a lot of a lot of sense um, because a taboo is. What it's it's not uh, something that's ignored. It's something that's not allowed to be talked about, and is actually consciously maintained as a taboo too. The writers right. that I sort of got used that phrase because it was um, the two writers, the, the political scientists Alexander Went and Robert Duvall, who wrote a piece in the book about that taboo. You know, which I think is an absolutely brilliant piece. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. They. You know. They. That's how they see it, and then they said that a taboo, by definition, is something that has to actually be maintained as such. It doesn't, you know, you have to keep doing the work to maintain the taboo. And that's one of the things they look at is how that happens with the UFO subject. So um, I think it really is a taboo. I, have, yeah. I, I do. And I, I think it's a really interesting way to look at it, which makes it much harder to overcome. Right. <laughs> I mean, right. it's not just about educating people or something. It's about all the associations that it has um, has had for many, many years of being silly and and. You know, anybody, nobody wants to be associated with it because they're afraid of their reputations. It's right. a really hard job to overcome that. But I think this book sort of provides what's needed. Anybody who's willing to read the whole book is going to have a hard time walking away and, and saying there's nothing to this. Yeah. And I'm not I've... saying that because I wrote it. 50% of it was written by other people. So, you know, um, I just think you just cannot walk away from the kind of information that's presented there. And I think a lot of these hardcore debunker types Aren't reading it. Well, that's that, yeah. It's like yeah. it kind of creates this cognitive dissonance, and so they're just going to avoid it. it. Does. Like, I'm yeah, I mean, one of them, James Oberg, did read it. I don't know if you're familiar with James Oberg, but anyway, he wrote no, a piece not. on MSNBC, tried to find something to, to find fault with in the book, and um, the, the the point that he made was that pilots are not really good observers of phenomenon, <laughs> phenomenon in the sky, <laughs> which you know. Come on. I mean, and so he, it was just that's all he could come up with. Right, anyway, right. So, so the, right, I was right. able to write a response to that, and it was a great opportunity for me to be able to write on MSNBC's website. So I was grateful to him. But you know, there's really not a lot you can argue with with this with this information. So yeah, well, and I guess that's a good reason why you didn't sort of go on and speculate about what things were. So there, there you had less of an of an area to attack. You had less vulnerability. You just present the evidence, and here's the evidence, and the, you know it's documented. So what can you do? Absolutely, and I think it's accurate that we really don't know what it is. And I think it also leaves people who read it wanting to know. You know, rather than me saying, oh, it's, it's extraterrestrial or it's this or it's that, they're going to read it and think, boy, I really do want to know what these things are. 
I right. hope, you know, it, it arouses a curiosity. It's like, a, it's just such a mystery. And I find that it's just so mysterious that just natural human curiosity, I think, wants to know what's going on. And I think it leaves the reader with that kind of a, a desire to find out, which well, will help push our officials towards that, towards that goal, I hope. Yeah, and you know, in fact, I think on a, on a show not too long ago, Justin Ashley asked me why why was I interested in the subject, and I said, mm-hmm. well, I can't imagine a more interesting question. I mean, uh, you know, it's just uh, as a curious person, um, that that ranks up there as the top questions, and I think, I, and I was recently watching a show on, I think it was a Science Channel, like a, maybe about astrophysics, or and an astronomer goes on there and he says, look, there are only two fundamental questions in astronomy. Where did we come from, and are we alone? Mm. I mean, that's those are the two fundamental questions, and you know, to some degree, you could probably boil it down to that. As you know, and I can't imagine not being interested in. I mean, that's why the taboo has to be so strong, I guess, um, to keep people. I guess, but I agree with you. Those are the two human questions. I think the other big human question that people have is: Do is there survival after death? What happens when we die? But I think, in terms of you know the physical universe, exactly, it's one of the biggest questions, and I think. It's an evolutionary thing. As a civilization, we are going to eventually learn that we're not alone, just like we learned that, you know, the Earth isn't, isn't flat. And mm-hmm. we learned that the sun, you know, that the planets revolve around the sun and the Earth is not the center of the universe. And all the things that, I mean, it took hundreds of years for us to accept the Copernicus, Copernicus's information about the Earth revolving around the sun. And, you know, people right. were burned at the stake for believing that. So, I mean... I think that this is going to be, and I'm not saying I know for sure that these are extraterrestrial, but I agree with the generals who have made the proposal that it's a likely, it's a likely explanation for them. For, uh, and I think it's, just, it's an evolutionary fact that eventually human beings are, it's going to become part of our reality to, to, to realize this, and we're like fighting it as long as we can. Just like we have right. in the past, we, we tend to fight things that radically change our worldviews, whether right. they're good things or bad things or, or scary or not, there's a lot of resistance to, to change that's that fundamental and that, that, you know, huge, I think. So I think that I see this as just one more thing like that. Um, and it's just a matter of time, I think, before we're going to figure out what's going on. You know, in, in, in terms of sort of uh, uh, understanding what things are, I, I, an article uh, popped up for me a, a few days ago that was sort of related. And, you know, a lot of times you hear people say, well... You know, even if you even if you're willing to consider the extraterrestrial hypothesis, I mean, how would they get here? And none of this, everything is against fit. I mean, physics does not allow for travel in any reasonable distances, right? And there's this article called um, "A Hidden Magnetic Effect of Light" in R and D magazine. Hmm. And it says, oh, and I'm essentially paraphrasing here, but overturning a century-old tenet of physics, a research group at the University of Michigan has discovered that at the right intensity when light is traveling through a material that does not conduct electricity, it can generate a magnetic field that is 100 million times stronger than previously expected. And this is in relation to solar. They can be used for solar cells, more efficient solar cells. Mm-hmm. But the reality that in, in what the main researcher there says, he says, and, and, he's, and he's writing this in the Journal of Applied Physics, he says, you could stare at the equations of motion all day and you would not see this possibility. We've all been taught that this doesn't happen, said Rand, an author of a paper uh, on the work published in the Journal of Applied Physics. It's a very odd interaction. That's why it's been overlooked for more than 100 years. So it's like, it's just another example of like, we don't know everything about physics yet. 
we don't know really what's possible. So you're starting to exclude things because, you know, um, our current view doesn't allow that to be possible. It seems to be um, premature. Right. I mean, I agree. It's like, why, why, why do we assume we completely understand all there is to physics? Right. And I would love it if you'd send me the link to that, by the way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And also, Jason, I don't know if you've ever heard of a physicist by the name of Hal Putoff. Oh, but no, he, yeah, he just wrote, and I'll send you this paper he just wrote, which if you're going to be posting things on your website, I mean, you might want, this sure. is a really interesting paper. It was just published in a journal in the UK, and it's also dealing with the question of, you know, the physicality of how something could ever get here. And it really talks about knowing what we know about the behavior of the UFOs, as, as, as has been reported over and over again. You know, here is how a future technology could develop the capacity to do what the UFOs have been shown to do. And, our, and he's explaining that through contemporary physics. Now, I can't understand a lot of it because it's mathematics. But right. it, it is, he is capable of showing we don't have the technology yet to do it, but here's the physics that would allow for future technology to be able to construct something that does what UFOs do. So it basically shows, you know, that a future civilization could certainly conceivably be able to do things that we've observed these things do, which includes traveling through space, you know, at, at, in shorter time so that they can get around. So I think you're right. More and more physicists are sort of exploring this and explaining how it could be conceivable, and we cannot put the lid on our knowledge and just assume that we figured everything out because we haven't. Right, right. Well, every time really you see it. Every time you see a you know a new um, uh, there's like a new explanation of like a theory of everything. I remember reading in Wired magazine I think about a year ago, and it was like the eight leading theories, and they were all each one was crazier than the other ones. Like an infinite number of parallel universes and in universes. <laughs> Whatever that means. I mean, what is that? I mean, that is you even can't even conceive of some of these things that yeah. they say. Yeah, I mean, it just you know, and and I mean, and the fact that the phys- physicists are saying, look, this these models. Um, fit with our mathematical formulations and therefore they're leading candidates. But if, 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 I mean, it's just amazing how crazy some of these ideas are, but they're taken seriously and considered and, you know, who knows? It just shows you we don't really know yet. Um, right. And Michio Kaku, of course, is, is one of the better known ones who oh, yeah. certainly has a popular audience and is able to, he talks about, you know, multiple universes and, and he certainly, uh, you know, so they're different, uh, you know, states, the different phases of civilizations and what they would be capable of. I mean, you know, it's just, you know, there's all kinds of one, things one can conceive of, and, and these are, that physicists conceive of, that allow for this possibility. So, I think that makes it so much more exciting when papers like, you know, when papers like that are produced. It's so exciting. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. It opens up our eyes to what's possible, and, and, you know, we really, we're just, we haven't been around on this earth that long, and we don't understand everything yet. That's right, and it's it's almost like we're it's almost like we're adolescents, like you know, like teenagers. They think they know everything. They just they just know a little bit, and now they think they know everything, and they're incredibly irritating because of that. Exactly. <laughs> like I think I think the conventional scientists, a lot of them, are like that. You know, yeah. they want to believe that they know everything. They're masters of the universe. Um, yeah, you know, for all we know, we could we might there might be all kinds of things that our senses aren't capable of perceiving that are right around us. Right. I mean, anyway, there's so many other possibilities beyond what we currently know, and um, I always think it's important to keep that in mind. And, and it makes it makes life much more exciting to to live in a, the realization that there's a lot more to discover. Oh yeah, and you know, I I know that I know that we're running out of time here, but I was wondering if I could just ask you a few more questions. If Absolutely, it's not sure. too much to ask. Um, no, 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 not it, at all. I'm, 
uh, I'm just, I yeah, I have some kind of interesting things. So the first thing I'd like to ask, did you actually get a chance to speak with uh, Michio Kaku personally about this, or did you just correspond, say, via email? Just corresponding. I mean, yeah, he's impossible to get access to. And he was yeah, kind yeah. enough to write the blurb. He's never before endorsed any book on the subject. You know, and he was, and it was because, you know, I have another contact who worked with him, and I've, I've met him over the years a couple of times, so he was sort of familiar with what I did. Okay. But I'm telling you, you know, I, I hate to admit this, but it was, he's just the kind of guy that gets hundreds of emails every day and doesn't even look at half of them. Sure. So you're lucky if you get his attention, and so no, it's, he's not the kind of guy that I can, like, have a conversation with very easily. <laughs> but well, um, that- he was kind enough to endorse my book, and that's all I would ever ask for ask him to do you know well that was huge that well i mean i saw him on that MS, msnbc interview and he he made a good case for it he's like oh, i was you know. i couldn't believe that you know jason i think that was the same night that i was on stephen colbert i, I come home oh. from stephen colbert you know which is like it was like the most thrilling experience for me to be on his show because i absolutely love him and yeah. i get this email that says you know, here's a here's an interview with Michio Kaku on MSNBC, and I think it was the same. I just could not believe, you know, that <laughs> that both those things happened. I mean, Michio Kaku is one of my heroes, you know. Yeah. And yeah. oh, it was just such an amazing moment for me. And then, uh, you know, Colbert is also somebody I I just absolutely think is oh, great. Yeah. yeah, he's fantastic. So um, yeah, it was really um, I was just it was very very gratifying to have those things happen, and I'm I'm so grateful to Michio Kaku. I mean, he's. I'm just grateful to him, and I think he he recognizes that there really is a mystery here, you know. And he yeah. likes to talk about it. And he likes to talk about the fact that it is conceivable that an advanced civilization could master technology that would allow them to travel through space. It's that simple. Well, just by the fact that he wrote the physics of the impossible shows that he's willing to use physics and still think broadly and not restrain himself. And, he's, and he has enough confidence in his own intellect and his own knowledge and I guess his own credibility that he can say, let's just speculate a little bit here based on what we know about physics. And Exactly. Yeah. He has a good imagination too, but he doesn't stray from the facts. And he has a new book, I think The, Fu- uh, the Physics of the Future or something like that, which oh, is, wow. I haven't read yet, but it just, yeah, it's been out for a few months and he's, so that's another one where he's sort of looking at what we will be capable of in the future. Um, so it's just something he's very interested in, obviously. Well, well speaking of getting big shot uh, sort of endorsements, uh, John Podesta, which who was Clinton's uh, chief of staff, uh, actually wrote the forward to your book. So how right. did you land that? That's, that's oh, pretty impressive. Yeah, that was another really thrilling moment. Um, well, I, I was fortunate. I mean, it's really because um, John Podesta has sort of been following the work I do since about 2002 when I got involved with this Freedom of Information Act case. It was a Freedom of Information Act actually led to a lawsuit against NASA. Uh-huh. That's a whole long story, and people can go on my, my Coalition for Freedom of Information website and read about it. But he, um, we, I was working with um, his brother's firm was involved because I was working with the Sci-Fi Channel who, was, who were backing this effort to you know, get get the bottom of this the case, the Kecksburg, a specific case that happened in Pennsylvania, and we were trying to get documents through the U.S. government. And, and John Podesta was very interested in open government and the Freedom of Information Act, and he made a lot of reforms in the act under Clinton. Or he, and, you know, I mean, Clinton gets Clinton. There were Clinton's reforms, but Podesta was the force behind them. So he, and he's also very just curious and interested in this subject matter. So because of those two issues, he was willing to kind of stand up with us and come to some press conferences and, and basically support the work that I was doing with this group of people to try to get to the bottom of this UFO case. Right. And so I had this long-term kind of relationship with him. He was very curious about this lawsuit, so I was able to go meet with him after it was over. 
you know, it took years and years and years and kind of keep him updated on the whole thing. And he just developed, so it's because of this relationship in which he, he saw the way I approached the subject. He respected the way I approach it, you know, as no, that we've talked about, you know, how seriously I approach it without all the sensationalism and the misinformation, all the stuff. And right. he, I know, and he just respects it and cares about it. And so I, I, after, because of the contact that we've had, when I, when we won this lawsuit, you know, he wrote, he made a very complimentary public statement about me and my work. So I thought, okay, maybe he'll write the forward to this book. And I asked him to do it and he said, yes, it was that simple. Wow. So, I mean, he's been, he's just been such an amazing uh, supporter and so willing, you know, unlike so many other people who do, who do find this subject interesting, but are not willing to state that publicly. He's willing right. to state it publicly. And I have just so much respect for him for that. He just doesn't really care if people think it's stupid. He's willing to put himself out there on the subject matter. And um, I, I just, it's such a gift to all of us that he's been willing to do that. So, you know, and um, a, a third person who endorsed your book, which I'd like to ask you about, which I, th- I found interesting, was uh, John L. Peterson, founder of the president, uh, founder and president of the Arlington Institute. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of a big shot too in uh, Washington circles, right? Yeah, I mean, he heads up the. He's a futurist, I guess that's what they call it, right? A futurist. Okay. Yeah, okay. who specializes in you know predicting and analyzing the likelihood that certain future events will occur and how they will impact society and being prepared for them. And yeah, he's very, very well connected in Washington. And he's had a longstanding interest in this subject, I think, within the context of the work he does, which, you know, allows for the possibility that future events are going to occur that we, uh, that are going to change civilization. And one of them would be contact. Yeah, because there was an interesting um, article uh, a while back. We referenced this actually in our interview with um, Richard Dolan uh, last mm-hmm. summer. And it was uh, a, an article called What's Up with the Black Budget written by Catherine Austin Fitz, who was the former assistant secretary of HUD, or her, right. uh, Housing and Urban Development under, uh, I guess it was Clinton. And in, in there she says, you know, in 1990, I'll, I'll just kind of read my notes here. She says, in 1998, I was approached by John Peterson head of the Arlington Institute, a small, high-quality military think tank in Washington, D.C. I had gotten to know John through the Global Business Network, um, et cetera, et cetera. And she goes on to say, um, she at, he asked me to help him with a high-level strategic plan Arlington was planning to undertake for the Undersecretary of the Navy. And, uh, and she says that essentially um, that it was to help the Navy adjust their operations for a world in which it was commonly known that aliens exist and live among us. And it was amazing. And Catherine Austin Fitz was like, uh, what? And is, is, now, would that just be the kind of thing that they would just talk about as sort of like a possibility? Like they're just throwing out like how to deal with, you know, extreme scenarios. I would think so. I mean, I, you know, I know all about the Catherine Austin Fitz claims and I quite honestly, I have never asked John Peterson about them because I think that in some circles, uh, people have questions about her, her credibility. Okay. okay. And it's such a touchy, and you know, she, I think she made these claims that he said that, yes, aliens were living among us and that maybe he wanted to introduce her to one or something like that. I find that right. very hard to believe that he right. said that. But it was supposed to be a confidential meeting. I don't think she was supposed to talk about it. Whatever they said at that meeting, you know, it's not yeah. really my business, so I'm not making any inquiries about it. I think... Peterson has tremendous credibility and he's a, he's a, you know, has done wonderful work. And I just, I don't know what to make of that. Um, right. so sometime maybe I'll have an opportunity to ask him about it. I'm sure he's not going to, he's going to, he, yeah, I mean, I'm sure he's not going to 
he's going to deny that that ever took place. And I, I'm sure that the two of them probably don't get along. I don't know. Right. But um, it's a bizarre thing that I have read over the years and sort of wondered about what actually happened there. I'm assuming there's something that's not being reported completely accurately. But right. what do I know? You know, I, I, we were saying we've got to be able to keep our minds open to anything, right? Right. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe there are aliens living among us. What do I know? You know what I mean? <laughs> well, I haven't you know, seen any, you know, and if there were, maybe there'd be no way to tell. So right. I'm open to anything. I don't know. And I'm not really going to be, I can't really comment on, you know, her, what she, because I don't, what she said, because I don't really know the, the story behind it. But, yeah, I, I, I wanted to ask about it because I saw, I was reading the back cover just going over and it said, John L. Peterson found it. I'm like, where do I know that from? And I went yeah. through my notes and I'm like, oh, wait a minute. This is great. I got to ask about this. Yeah, um, I don't know how many people might know about it. I mean, you're very astute and I, I've, I have wondered about it myself, but I just have nothing that I can add to that whole, that whole bizarre kind of interchange that, the, that she had about it. So if right. I ever find out more, I'll let you know. I'd love to. And I'd ask you, but what about, um, you know, you, you, you pilots, uh, generals and government officials, but another group that I was curious that, that weren't covered, um, because there seems to be some evidence of this, is, is astronauts. Right. Like, and uh, people are Gordon asking Cooper that. Yeah. and Ed, Edgar Mitchell and some others who've, I, I had a list of them at one point that I, that I was in an email exchange with somebody and we were kind of, kind of cataloging the YouTube inter- interviews with these various astronauts. And it seemed like there's a fair number of them who, who were making claims. Did you follow up on that much? Yeah. I mean, I've read about them and, you know, I decided, you know, first, partly just for, it's a matter of space, you know, that you sure. only have so many pages for a book, but the, the, the astronaut things, I mean, they're interesting and they're intriguing, but they're usually not documented. And even though they're astronauts, you know, they're saying there might be a conversation where one of them says, oh, I see, I see something over there and they don't know what it is or, and then that's recorded and people make, I mean, the Gordon Cooper thing is, is at another level, but the comments that astronauts have made while they're in the space shuttle or they see something, it's all very interesting, but it's, you know, we don't have anything else except for what the pilots have said. Sure. And that's right. not really at the level of the cases in my book, which have all kinds of radar and multiple witnesses and photographs and, you know, endless data, physical ground traces. And so People I didn't, I just, it. yeah, exactly. I mean, I just felt like it didn't have the weight in terms of the physical evidence that we needed. And I think, um, you know, the, 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 Edgar, the, um, the Gordon Cooper story, you know, of the photograph that he, he saw and everything is also really interesting. But he's not around, and I don't have any, there's no documentation on that. Again, it's, it's, it's one person's story, and I have great respect for him, of course, but there's nothing else. And so I just figured, like, I wanted to focus in on the cases where I can actually get the people involved, you know, to write about them. And Gordon right. Cooper is not available for that. And number right. two, where there's so much documentation for them that it's not just about one person saying something, no matter how high-ranking that person is. We need more than that, you know. So that's sort of that's sort of in a nutshell why. I mean, if I had had, you know, another volume or something, I, I would have loved to have talked more about the astronauts and kind of analyzed what I think is a value that they said and what I and why maybe we can't rely on a lot of it. But I didn't have the space to do it. Right. And you know, people can go on the internet and find find out more about it, but it just it just doesn't have the kind of weight behind it. And I, I think you'd probably agree with me in terms of the, the data that we need yeah. to really make a case for something. Even well, if it's I... something they can't explain, we still don't know what it, you know whether it could have been something else. Yeah, you I, know, I, and there's I... arguments people say, oh, it was ice crystals or it was 
I, I just don't have any way of really analyzing that. Um, it's a well, I, th- of, I think it's I th- more to be a matter of opinion. I think. Well, and I think, and then you get caught up in that, and it's it's like it's like you have to like you're sort of playing the part of a district attorney. You're building your case, and you you have a lot of evidence, but we're, you're going to restrict it to only the best because anytime you introduce weak evidence, you're just weakening the whole argument in front of the jury. So Yeah, and it's just not as interesting either. Yeah, right. You know, if it's yeah. sort of got ambiguity to it, okay, well, then there's plenty of that on the Internet, and there's plenty more that people can read about. But, yeah, and I think a lot of it for me, too, was not just the best cases, which I think I have, but it was also getting cases in which they're living. I was trying to focus on cases that were fairly recent, I mean, they were all after the close of Project Blue Book, so they nothing earlier than the 70s. And, I, you know, where the people were still living and could actually write a chapter for my book in their own words, that to me was an important criteria. And no astronaut was, is going to do that. Right. That was part of it, too. And do they wouldn't have a lot to say anyway. Right. Cause These they, astronauts, they, you know, they might be able to write a paragraph. Oh, I heard uh, this is the conversation that we had. Or I looked out the window and I saw this thing that looked kind of like this. But, you know, right. they don't have anything else to say. So it just really doesn't go anywhere. So speaking of going anywhere, I mean, after, after this book, um, do you have another book in mind? Are you, um, is this sort of close um, your investigation in this? Or are you going to push forward and you have other things that are worth looking into? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of what I'm trying to do now is, as I said in the book, we sort of shift more towards trying to create some kind of change within the Washington political system. You know, right. It's about reaching politicians and scientists to really try to create some kind of concrete shift so that we might be able to get the proper kind of investigations going on. And I'm working on that, and I'm telling you, it's really, really hard because there's so much resistance. And so, it's just these people are not informed. They're not interested. They have all these other things going on. It's very, very hard to kind of you know, break through that into that world, but I'm, I'm really trying to do that more. And the other thing I've done is there's a documentary, a special a television special being made about based on the book, which is going to be on the History Channel this summer. And so I've been a producer, and a you know I have a, a very a role in creating this film. I've been doing that since October, and it's taken up a lot of time. And we've right. been traveling around and interviewing a lot of the people that are in the book. It's made by a very very accomplished independent film company called Breakthrough Films. So that has taken up a lot of my time, and I haven't really, you know, had been able to really think about um, another book. I don't know what else there is to say, really, <laughs> besides what I've already said, you know. And I, I, but you know, so I'm sort of taking it right now. I'm involved with this film project and and trying to work behind the scenes in Washington to address, get people to pay attention, and bringing people the right kind of information and things like that, which takes a lot of time. It's not something I can talk about because everybody has to be. Right. It has to be done privately, so nobody really. There's no way I can share how much work it right. takes to do that. But it is a big part of what I'm doing, and um, that's really it. And I don't. I just don't know about another book. I mean, I can't even think about it right now. I'm just too kind of well. I, I guess what I'm I, doing. Yeah, I mean, I guess this book, from my perspective, having just read it, I think this this uh, accomplishes its task, which is like the phenomenon is real. 
you can't you can't argue with the evidence and the credibility of the of the witnesses. So, and you also make an argument for, or you make a good explanation of why the taboo exists and and on all that sort of stuff. So, I think I think it accomplishes its uh, purpose. And, and then then I guess right the obvious next step is then to think of like okay, well, how can you use it as a platform to actually make maybe change things? So that makes perfect exactly. sense. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Jason, I and, appreciate so much your comments on the book, but yeah, and it's not the the second part is not easy. Even though you, no. you have this book which sort of says it all, but, you know, uh, people in political office are not going to read it. You know, right. I mean, they're just not going to read it. They don't, they might have a staffer, if they were interested in the topic, they might ask a staffer to read it and write, write them a one-page summary, but they're not even interested. It's not, you know, so it's, right. you're really, really trying to break through this huge uh, brick wall and trying to get, and I think it, but I think that's what sort of, what I'm, what has to happen now, and and then the paperback is also going to come out this summer, by the way, the paperback edition. So there's mm-hmm. going to be a whole new media campaign that the Crown Publishing Group, who published my book, is is already gearing up for. So we may be able to get more information out that way too, just the way I did last summer when the hardback came out. Um, so we'll see what kind of results we get with that campaign also. But that's going to be uh, another opportunity to get word out. Mm-hmm. No, and the, the documentary the, the, will be aired at the same time as, as the paperback comes out. Yeah. Do you have a title for the the documentary? It's called well, it's called UFOs on the Record, but I think it's part of a series they have called Secret Access on History Channel. Okay. It's a good question, and we just had this conference call with them, and I didn't ask them, but they they, they refer to it their series as Secret Access, and then it's like so it's Secret Access colon UFOs on the Record, and everybody okay. in this documentary is you know are either generals, pilots, or government officials. It's really based on the book and a lot of the same people. And we went to Europe, we went to Belgium, did a whole lot of work there. So it's really, I think it's really going to be good. And I'll definitely have it on my Facebook page when it's going to be aired. For people, you know, that are listening, I do have an open Facebook page. It's an off my author page, so you don't have to be a friend to get on it. And it's right. very active. And I, I have really interesting discussions going on with people and interesting postings. And I, I will invite everybody to come on that page and you know these I, I, I will let people know it'll definitely word will get out when the thing is going to be on History Channel um, and my well, other website UFOs on the Record also has a link to the Facebook page so um, well, we'll, um, yeah. we'll put links in the description to all of this so UFOs on the Record and um, and then there's uh, the, the one about the information I can't remember off the top of my head the uh, your your primary website oh, the Coalition website. for Freedom of Information yeah, sort of like the, right. the work I did before I got involved with the book but for anybody okay. who's interested in, you know, it's got newspaper stories and it's got the press conference of the 2007 press conference and the whole lawsuit I was involved with with NASA is also a document. It's freedomofinfo.org. Okay, um, then the, right. The book is sort of, I set up a whole new website, you know, at the time that's really based around the book, which is the UFOs on the record. But there are links there. Everything's linked together. So, and I'd well, love course, to get these, these, these articles. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. You you're saying? No, I was going to say, uh, Jason, the articles that you've referenced during this interview sound so fascinating, and the ones you haven't already sent me, I, I really look forward to you sending me those links and anything else you run across you know, in, in months to come Absolutely. that sort of relates to this. You obviously are, are plugged into a very kind of scientific approach to these issues, and I really value that, so um, I'd love to, for you to send me links. Oh, absolutely. That that I'd love to. Um, you know, I, I get I, when I was reading your book, I just had all these ideas, and I just said, "Man, I wish I'd have, I filed my links a little better because I couldn't find some oh, of this really? stuff that I was looking." 
I'm like, oh, there was this other article, and like, there's this one uh, I just read last night about the SETI and how they they shut down SETI, and and you were I talking about it. Yeah, and yeah, you, you, you mentioned your book. Go ahead. Yeah, and you you. You went th- one aspect was really interesting is you mentioned I think and maybe it was in the in your uh, preface or something introduction about how um, there were you know four hundred extrasolar planets that had been um, discovered so far you know and yeah, even in this article by now. Mm-hmm. yeah this spring there's over you know was it something like a thousand and uh, one thousand two hundred thirty five new possible planets have been observed by Kepler extrasolar planets which is the telescope wow. and uh, space telescope. Right. It's like it ever expands. I'm like, yeah, that's another interesting part. But it's so hard sometimes to keep track of all these links. <laughs> like I, I agree with you. I mean, we're all on information overload here. We're information overload yeah. is the name of the game, right? And yeah, and it's hard to know how to organize them. I have the same issue. I just sort of pop them on my Facebook page and at least they're sitting there, you know. But um, somewhere. I, I know. And it just sounds like you're really plugged into some really, really great uh, information. So I, I value that a lot. Um, well, yeah, thanks. I'll definitely, uh, I'll forward to you what I find that, that seems relevant and interesting and that I might think it might be helpful for you at all. Um, well, you know, Leslie, it has been really an honor to have you on. And I'm so, uh, I was so, uh, I, I so enjoyed reading your book. I think it's a great addition to uh, just understanding for everybody about what the hell's going on. Um, well, thank so thank you, thank you so, so much, much for Jason. writing it. Well, thank you. It's been really delightful to talk to you because you've read it so carefully, and you're, you know, you have really, really important comments to make. And I, you've been, you, you've been great to talk to. Really enjoyable. Oh. Well, thank you very much, uh, and I wish you the best of luck um, with the uh, new documentary and with what you're trying to make happen in Washington. And uh, um, I will, uh, I'll definitely be in touch. I'll send you some links. So, thanks, thanks so <laughs> much. Really cool. Okay. Well, best of luck right. to you, and thanks again for doing this. I really appreciate it. All right. That's a wrap. We're out.